This is the Ultra Running History Podcast. I'm your host, Davey Crockett. Thanks. Thanks for coming. This is episode 62, part 9 of the 100 Mile History. In this episode, I will share some fun stories from the 1960s about 100 mile attempts and then reveal some lost history of the very first attempts to walk and run 100 miles in Death Valley during the late 1960s. Yes, Death Valley. Heat, danger, near death, everything an ultra runner enjoys. And now, Death Valley Days. No, not Death Valley Days. That was a Western TV show, also shown during that era. (laughs) Now to the story. Howdy, folks. I'm the old ranger, and I have another interesting true story for you about the historic Death Valley country. A hundred miles, a hundred miles, a hundred miles, one hundred miles. You can hear the whistle blow a hundred miles. During the 1960s, formal 100-mile races took a backseat to the shorter ultra-running distances that were starting to draw talented runners into the sport from marathon running. The 50-mile distance was on ultra-running center stage as London to Brighton emerged as the premier world ultra-running race along with Comrades Marathon competed in South Africa. In America, a 50-mile craze took place by the general public in 1963 due to some comments made by President John F. Kennedy, see episode 4, and some bold individuals proved that they could do a double 100 miles. 100-mile races were waiting in the wings to be competed seriously again. However, the 100-mile distance on foot fascinated the general public, especially men in the military. Many people in all walks of life found ways during the 1960s to achieve it. For the first time, Death Valley became a harsh target location for athletes who are now long forgotten to prove they could overcome suffering and cover 100 miles during intense summer heat. These attempts received national attention and also frustrated Death Valley Monument Rangers but they would lay the foundational idea that would eventually become the Badwater Ultramarathon. One hundred mile marches continued in the military. In September 1961, a 48-hour 100 mile endurance march was held in Delaware, put on by the Delaware National Guard. It was called Operation Wingfoot. Colonel William Drakeley explained. This grueling march is open to those volunteers who think they are tough enough to keep up with Castro's guerrillas. Drakeley got the idea a few months earlier when a peace march went through Delaware. He said, I admire those peace marchers, but they're living in a dream world. We've got to learn how to survive in this world, and one way for Americans to survive is to be physically fit and prepared. Those who signed up for the 100-miler had to have previously accomplished a 15-mile hike. 46 men started. The 100-milers wore uniforms, a soft cap, and carried a light marching pack with a helmet attached. 
Other equipment included a poncho, cartridge belt, canteen, and a carbine. Each man was required to bring four extra pair of socks. The first man that fell out received an award of a blister kit and a crying towel. <laughs> it was reported, The hikers rested a total of 13 hours and consumed liquids mostly by nourishment. They had one sea ration meal. Some men who fell out were treated by a traveling field hospital and returned to action. Many spectators cheered them along the way, and motorists kept stopping to offer rides, which they declined. Six men finished the 100-miler with a time of 48 and a half hours. They were all awarded the Medal of Military Merit. In June 1961, a group of 11 Marine Corps reservists participated in a cat-and-mouse 100-mile trek in New Mexico to see if they could go from the Hemis Mountains to Albuquerque undetected by the public. Most of the marching was done at night to avoid detection. The men made their toughest march across the desert, covering 25 miles in 12 hours with little rest. The group saw more than 100 fishermen, picnickers, and other civilians during their march. One night, a barking dog prodded a woman outside her home to search the area with a flashlight. Who's out there? But she missed the Marines flattened in a nearby ditch. Word got out about the 100-miler, and huge groups of civilians came to the area over the weekend to see if they could spot the party. A state patrolman was assigned to handle extra traffic in the area. But they were undetected and slipped into the reserve training center at Albuquerque one morning at 4 a.m., finishing their journey. They succeeded in five and a half days. Their leader congratulated the group. A lot of people thought you couldn't do it, but you did it, and did a bang-up job. It proves a group of men can be molded into an efficient unit in a few days. Worldwide news attention was given to soldiers in New Zealand who conducted a 100-mile hike in 37 hours, 37 minutes. This got the attention of the British servicemen. In November 1961, Brian Marshall, 25, of the Royal Engineers marched 100 miles from Longmoor to London in full battle gear in 28 hours, 15 minutes. The United States Marines weren't going to be left out and wanted to prove that they were the best. In January 1962, in Okinawa, Japan, four Marine corporals put on their own 100-miler. They went 50 miles to Naha Air Force Base and back. A military vehicle traveled with them carrying sandwiches, orange juice, honey, and cocoa. Two finished. During the last mile, an entire company walked with the two, accompanied by the Division Drum and Bugle Corps blaring the Marine Corps hymn. They finished in 24 hours, 58 minutes, and were congratulated by two generals as they crossed the finish line. They claimed that they had set a new world record and were pleased that they had crushed the time achieved by the Brits. Daryl Dent was born in Burwell, Nebraska in 1942 and grew up on a farm. In high school, he became a very successful athlete, earning four letters for football and track. He was a state champion running the mile with a best time of 431 in 1960. After graduating, he entered the Marine Corps in 1961. 
1963, Dent was stationed on Okinawa, Japan. In area equal to half that of Rhode Island, Okinawa is a vital outpost in the free world's defense network, less than 400 miles from the coast of communist China. On February 4, 1963, Dent attempted to break the 100-miler record on the Okinawa course. Dent ran through rain and sleet and at the halfway point changed from field boots to dress shoes. He fueled on a sandwich, three cups of soup, tomato juice, honey, and drank water. Many members of his regiment accompanied him at one time or another. Dent finished in an astonishing 16 hours, 42 minutes, beating the record by about three hours. This was the fastest American modern-day 100-miler at that point. Wow. Dent continued to win running competitions in the service at various distances during 1963 and became a very accomplished runner when he went to college. Dent graduated and moved to Billings, Montana, where he went into real estate and was active in the running community and president of the Billings Distance Runners and Joggers team. He continued to race for several years and broke age group records, but never again ran past the marathon distance. It is likely he never heard about ultramarathons. In 2020, Dent was 77 years old and still living in buildings. Who can crack the elephant's back? Jack Kennedy in 1963, President John F. Kennedy unintentionally played an important role that provided a spark to ignite interest for ultra-running in America and elsewhere. Back in 1908, President Theodore Roosevelt issued an executive order that every Marine captain and lieutenant should be able to hike 50 miles in 20 hours. It all started when the President reactivated a physical fitness order of Theodore Roosevelt. Everybody is doing it, including these Marin County, California high school students. Fifty miles can seem an infinity when you are obviously not used to walking any further than to the nearest automobile or bus. Many wanted to double the challenge and go 100 miles. Anchors away, my boys. Anchors away, away. In Texas, four sailors stationed at Corpus Christi set out to go 100 miles. All four were office workers with no previous hiking experience. The four suffered. Words recorded in a logbook included, Feet sore, probably bleeding, afraid to look. Another entry, My foot is one big blister. People along the way offered them coffee and sandwiches. One sailor said, Boy, these Texas miles sure are long. Another said, We've had a lot of fun, but I sure wanted to cheat a lot of times. It was reported, Three of them were about ready to quit yesterday, but Cush held out. He said he thought that they were going to beat him up for a while if he didn't stop, but finally they all decided to keep going. They finished. College students got into the 100-mile act. In February 1963, two University of Vermont students set out. Their motivation was to outdo the thousands of 50-mile hikers in the nation by doing a double distance and walking 100 miles. Wearing windbreakers, corduroy pants with no long underwear, and a Tylerine-type walking shoe, 
They contended with bitter weather, heavy trailer truck traffic that forced them to dive into snowbanks to avoid being hit, and as the miles paced by, blisters on their feet. These naive young men quit after ten and a half hours at mile 36. In New York, eight LaSalle College students conducted a 100-mile basketball dribbling relay hike from Philadelphia to New York City. Each student dribbled or bounced the ball for two hours and then was relieved by another student who then took over. They made it to the city but were thwarted by officials on the Staten Island Ferry. In the mid-1960s, several Boy Scout troops attempted 100-mile hikes rather than 50-mile hikes that were becoming popular. One troop did it in close to two days. This group was from Saugerties, New York. Hey guys, I got a marching song for us! Follow me, boys, follow me. Pick them up, put them down and follow me. Hey, that's pretty on April 3rd, 1964, the troop, including nine boys, climbed into two station wagons, headed to New York City for their planned hike back to their home. The boys were very fit and had trained for this grueling challenge by hiking the Appalachian Trail for 50 miles and cycling 100 miles from Vermont. They started from the Bronx Courthouse in the afternoon and hiked until dark when they ate for the first time at a diner. 16-year-old David Lewis said, a girl asked us if we were on a campout. We told her we hiked from New York, and she replied, You're kidding. They continued to hike for quite a while in the dark after supper, wearing fluorescent belts, reaching Terrytown, escorted by a police car after a 20-mile first day. They all got started on the second day at 6 a.m. and hoped to hike 50 miles. In stiff winds, they walked the 50 miles getting into Poughkeepsie. They all seemed to be getting stronger and managed about 15-minute miles the next day. As they reached closer to home, many people in cars stopped to take pictures. Lewis remarked, We were too tired to smile, much less wave to the camera. I do not know what kept us going. Some say it was internal fortitude, but I say it was perpetual motion. I was thinking of just getting home to a nice warm bed and trying to outsleep Rip Van Winkle. As they approached the Saugerties town line, they could see many people awaiting their return. The crowd got bigger and bigger. We were then greeted by our families and rushed to the cars. They were taken to the town hall to be photographed and interviewed by reporters. The young group finished 100 miles in a little more than 48 hours. Missing and forgotten in the famed Badwater Ultramarathon history are the earliest 1960s attempts to go more than 100 miles in Death Valley during the hottest part of the summer. Oh. Oh. You could have made it without me. I doubt it. Funny. I used to be scared of dying, but I'm not anymore. These brutal hikes received intense national attention at the time and certainly planted ideas that progressed to the formal race established two decades later. Death Valley is in eastern California and contains the point of lowest elevation in North America at 282 feet below sea level. The average daily high temperature in July is 116 degrees Fahrenheit. 
Death Valley. The name itself conjures an image of vast desolation. The lowest point in the Western Hemisphere. The driest place in the USA. Jean-Pierre Marcot was an ex-paratrooper from Nice, France. He went to the United States in early 1965 and hitchhiked around the country. In 1966, Marcot, aged 28, set off to walk across Death Valley in the heat of July. Officials thought he was the first person to deliberately attempt a crossing of Death Valley in the summer. Marcot had experience. He earlier spent 103 days hiking over 1,000 miles of Algerian desert. He said, It was desert country, but of course not nearly as hot and dry as Death Valley. He spent five days before his start conditioning himself in the heat, taking short walks near the National Monument headquarters. Marco's extremely difficult route was not along the paved roads. He planned to make a huge circular route that included scaling 9,000-foot Wild Rose Peak and 11,000-foot Telescope Peak along the way. He left a map with the rangers outlining his route and gave estimates for arrival at various places in the valley. Officials said, Because of the extreme heat, a ground search party will not be sent to look for Marco if he should fail to turn up at a checkpoint. The only help we can offer is to place a call to Edwards or George Air Force bases and request a helicopter fly the area to try to spot him. We admire Marco's courage, but have serious doubts he will succeed. When asked why, Marco said he was making the hike to show Europeans there was still adventure in the States. It was later discovered that he was being sponsored by Coca-Cola. Marco started his trek at sundown on July 20th, 1966, wearing a 10-gallon hat, three t-shirts, gloves, short pants, three pair of socks, and tennis shoes. He also had blue-tinted glasses and a large umbrella. A support party of three traveled by truck and were scheduled to meet Marco daily to provide fresh water, iced coke, clothing, and other supplies. In his large 46-pound rucksack, he carried 2.5 gallons of water, baby food, salt tablets, dried fruit, a snake bite kit, a bright orange sleeping bag, and other incidentals, including a volume of poetry. After two days, he reappeared soaking from perspiration at the ghost town of Skidoo, 24 miles from his starting point. He next headed to scale Wild Rose Peak. The ranger reported, He's in pretty good shape and we're maintaining contact. After four days, Marco reached the halfway mark. There was some concern when he arrived at his checkpoint 12 hours late. He said that rough terrain forced him to reduce his pace and spend the night on the slopes of Wild Rose Peak. On the peak, it had been a cool 80 degrees, but then he headed down in the valley where it was 116 degrees. On day five, he said that he narrowly missed death when he slipped three times on loose shale while descending 11,059 foot Telescope Peak. But he eventually made it safely down the eastern face and arrived at Shorty's Well. 262 feet below sea level. His shoes were ripped and his clothing tattered. I about killed myself, but I just hung on with a grip. 
He then followed burrow tracks because he knew they took the safest routes. Marco was overdue again and rangers drove a four-wheel drive truck into the canyon, finding Marco about four miles away. I don't know what this Frenchman's secret is. I've never seen anyone do this before. Rangers convinced him to alter his next route of salt flats so they could keep him under observation. The same day, an army reservist was found dead of exposure and dehydration a few miles away from Death Valley Monument. On the sixth day, Marco trudged into Furnace Creek on blistered feet during the night. He had not been visible since the afternoon when he started a tough, hot, cross-country five-mile stretch. Ground heat was estimated at 190 degrees, causing his shoes to fall apart and burn his feet. He bound his feet with gauze and adhesive tape and replaced his shoes with sandals on the last three miles. He had covered 84 miles during the six days. He took the next day off to recover and soak his blistered feet in Epsom salts. On the eighth day, Marco planned to walk 18 miles from Furnace Creek to the sand dunes near Stovepipe Wells, his starting point. Shortly after noon, rangers found the Frenchman on the ground under his umbrella about five miles from the day's starting point. He was unconscious and dehydrated. They revived him with ice water and after 45 minutes he said he had to keep going. Under close surveillance by two rangers, Marco struggled along the trail for about three and a half hours, consuming three gallons of water by drinking and rinsing himself. After a total of 11 miles, he stopped for the night with seven miles to go because he needed sleep. In the morning of the ninth day, he told rangers, Don't worry about me. I know I will be able to make it. On July 28th at 7.30 a.m. he finished. He said, I am going to shake de Gaulle's hand. I'm going to kiss Bridget Bardot. He then admitted, I'm happy it's over. Once the news of Marco's accomplishment went viral, many others thought that they could do better. A few weeks later, others were putting plans together to outdo Marco. Two Southern California men, Cliff McAdams, a newspaper travel editor, and Gordon Ritzman, a freelance photographer, set off in 113-degree heat, hoping to complete a 130-mile south-to-north journey through Death Valley. They started on August 25, 1966, from the southern edge of the valley at a place called Saratoga Spring, and hoped to finish at Scotty's Castle in eight days. They were said to be energetic as they set off. Their support team would be in constant contact with the two by walkie-talkie. Their motivation for the hike was to uphold America's honor, beating the French. The two covered 38 miles on the first two days. They wore special shoes to protect their feet against the heat and said that when they poured water on themselves, it evaporated before they could put their canteens away. After four days, they were ahead of schedule at about mile 81 and faced gusty winds. They were both suffering from badly blistered feet and exhaustion. Ritzman had sore knees and swollen hands. He was taken to his service station to get his wedding band cut off. On the sixth day, the two men accomplished their 130-mile hike. They said, The last four miles was the hardest part of the whole trip because of the steep grades. The day they finished, three more hikers joined in the Death Valley frenzy. A ranger said, It's getting pretty crowded out here. The news press called them nuts. Are you crazy? 
Boris Yankov, a Russian immigrant and former army paratrooper from Broderick, California, started his own trek. Yankov, age 52, covered the same circular route taken by Marco, but in the cooler temperatures of early September. He said, I didn't want anyone to say I picked an easier route. His support crew reported that he kept up a steady pace and completed his journey on September 3rd, 1966, two days faster than Marco. The following year, on July 9th, 1967, Roy Sewell, a casino bartender from Reno, Nevada, set out on a very dangerous 269-mile solo hike without a support crew. He planned to start in Beatty, Nevada and do a huge loop in the desert to prove to himself he could do it. He carried only a half gallon of water, a pup tent, two sun-reflecting aluminum blankets, seven pounds of concentrated food, a pistol, knife, and a change of clothing. He planned to obtain water in wells along the way, and also obtain water by placing a canteen in a hole in the ground covered with plastic and a mound of dirt, with the theory that moisture condensation would end up in the canteen. I want a low point in the middle, and it's that low point that's going to track all that moisture down into the center and collect in my cup. He did most of his miles in the cooler morning and evening hours and rested during the heat of the day. A search had been started for him, but when he reported in, he said, Oh, don't worry about me. I wasn't worried at all. He should have worried more. As he went on, he became ill at some point and found a culvert under a highway to get in the shade. He passed out, but when he woke up, he felt just fine and continued. Can I get you anything? Water would be nice. On July 14, 1967, it was reported that Sewell was in a Las Vegas hospital being treated for heat exhaustion and sore feet. The day before, he started suffering chest pains and was found by a truck driver sitting under a mesquite tree. He was driven to Shushone and then onto the hospital. His brazen and dangerous journey had lasted for five days and covered about 125 miles. He stayed in the hospital for three days and planned to resume his journey and return to his stopping point. But pressure from his friends and park officials convinced him to quit. John Stratton, superintendent of Death Valley National Monument, stressed that all hikers should be taking better safety precautions. We don't have enough people to keep an eye on a hiker out there all alone. We're concerned with human life and safety primarily. If someone wants to hike out there, they can do it with a support party or during the wintertime. The monument had only seven rangers to patrol two million acres. Public opinion turned against the dangerous hikes. No, there weren't protests. But a Sacramento, California newspaper editorialized, It would be a welcome exercise of good sense if this business of walking across Death Valley in the summer were ended. Just what the recent hikers in Death Valley are trying to prove is difficult for the adult mind to grasp. There is tremendous sanity in refusing physical challenges and in finding as much comfort as this uncertain life affords. 
But the midsummer Death Valley treks continued in 1967. Boris Yankov came back and set out again on foot on August 2nd, 1967 with a three-person support crew providing food and water. He took on the north-south route accomplished by McAdams and Ritzman, but wanted to do it much faster. At one point, a ranger met him running through the sands of a remote desert trail and asked, What's happening? Yankov's reply was, I just do this for fun. You call that fun? was the ranger's reply, shouted as Yankov continued trotting. He finished the 120 plus miles in 68 hours with very little sleep, walking the final 57 miles without stopping. Bill Emerton of Australia tried to break Yankov's end-to-end -end record in April 1968. He was a self-promoting ultra-running legend from Australia. He was a true runner and wore a lightweight woolen tracksuit. He suffered from bad blisters on his feet from relatively cool 95 degree heat. Emerton finished with a time of 75 hours, 23 minutes, well short of Yankov's time. He said, I never want to see Death Valley again as long as I live. A couple weeks later, Cliff McAdams, who was the first to complete the north-south route in 1966, tried it in cooler weather, this time solo with a crew. He had produced a film, 130 miles across Death Valley, that had been airing on television and wanted another adventure. He said that he was attempting to set a winter record and do better than Emerton's time set a few weeks earlier. He did not recognize Yankov's 1968 finish because Yankov hiked at night when it was cool and he thought that was easier and cheating, that his own summer record should still stand. Since he was a newspaper man, he made sure that the newspapers knew that he was the true record holder. Yes, it was silliness and clearly an effort to keep attention on himself or his film and a book he hoped to write. McAdams journeyed in 101 degree heat by alternating running, hiking, and resting, reaching 48 miles on the first day. On the second day, he had quit his attempt after pulling a muscle. He had reached 63 miles. But two weeks later, McAdams returned for another attempt, starting again on May 12, 1968. He reached 52 miles on the first day and arrived at Stovepipe Well Junction, mile 85, on day two. He was ahead of Emerton's pace by eight miles. The high temperature was 112 degrees. Day three was a very cool 80 degrees, and he crushed the 125-mile finish in a record time of 65 hours, 13 minutes, even beating Yankov's time. Yankov had said that he was through with Death Valley, but two months later, in July 1968, he was back doing it again because his record had been broken. Despite being ill, midway, from taking too much salt and stopping for 12 hours, Yankov successfully finished in a new record of 62 hours, 31 minutes. A few days later, Arch Edwards, a Hollywood actor, and his brother, Dennis Owens, both of Los Angeles, set out to beat Yankov's record. They did finish, but were 21 hours slower. They were both very glad that the ordeal was over. In 1969, Monument officials tried to bring the Death Valley frenzy under more control 
when they issued a special sheet of regulations and suggestions for hikers. But more naive hikers would continue to try to break the north-south record into the 70s, and others would bring in the era of Badwater by attempting to go from Badwater to the top of Mount Whitney. Stay tuned for more 100-mile history. With that, this is Davy Crockett, and this is the Ultra Running History Podcast. I hope you run fast and far, enjoy life, get outdoors, and most of all, stay safe and don't take unnecessary chances. Mm-hmm.